Think of a time when you experienced a conversation that left you with a new perspective or perhaps an inquiry, or you might have felt that something has shifted in you after that conversation. Maybe it helped you gain a new level of clarity or moved you to take action. That was a coaching conversation. Hello and welcome to The Coaching Conversation. This is your host, Salah Elethi. I am delighted and honored to have with me today, Sean Meredith. He's a coach, a family therapist, and uh, he's been also working with leadership and executives. His company is called Effective Leadership. So I'm actually curious about that. We'll get to that. Sean, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm excited about teasing out our, our concepts today. Yeah, so I the first question I have, like when I read about your work, you named your company Effective Leadership with an A, yes. not Effective Leadership. So what's what's the story behind that? Uh, it, it, well, it was a it was a, a marketing ploy joke that that ruined me because no one can spell <laughs> it right. But uh, it also um, that joke aside, it captures what I think is important in in coaching for me. So affective uh, affect another word for emotion is what I find most often is really the topic in coaching. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. Uh, and leadership. I think that leadership, maybe when you split leadership and management, um, that that really is a lot the divining line. Mm -hmm. Folks who have a certain level of EQ, a certain ability to uh, recognize that, manage something that I call emotional process, tend to be successful leaders. So, uh, so yeah, I kind of wanted to put it out there, captured early on that this is my slant on things. If, if you're not comfortable I'm in that space, then I'm probably not the coach for you. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it was no. a fun name. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it does uh, reflect, you know, I didn't, I didn't connect the dots initially, but I, I think what you said makes sense about like, there's some sort of affection in leadership. Uh, if you, you, you need to care about your people and you need to care about yourself to grow and understand yourself better. So how did you become a coach or to, what's your story your journey yeah it's a, a very crooked line so um <laughs> i started uh, out of college with a wonderful uh, nepotism career as a financial planner so it's kind of what the family did uh so i did it because i didn't know what i wanted to do and so i did that for a while paying the bills and um it was it was fun it was great it was you know a nice job with a nice future but i just was not feeling the meaning, you know, I was kind of personally mm -hmm. disenfranchised. Um, so uh, as any smart 23 year old would do, I decided a good solution to my problem was to get into a degree in existential philosophy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I went and did that for a while. Uh, it, it was, it was a silly thing, but it was, it was, you know, it was perfect in the moment. It was an expensive lesson, but it was a great one. And uh, so I studied a lot of uh, um, the existential philosophers are, are really a fancy word for just trying to say what, what what does it mean to be human? What are we about? How do we function? Um, that sort of stuff. And uh, so here I was, financial planning experience, uh, existential philosophy degree, again, the, the least marketable person in the world. I'm, I'm hearing a theme here. And uh, I ended up applying to about 300 jobs. So locally, I just started faxing out resumes to places with, on a wing and a prayer. And uh, I landed at a place uh, locally, a, a, a nonprofit did this uh, ecosystemic family therapy stuff. I said yes, because I needed a job. So uh, I, I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was, it was just amazing. We, um, we did family therapy in the living room with everyone at once. So it was very similar to like sports refereeing. Uh, you would kind of ask the family, what do you wish you looked like? They would tell you and you'd say, be careful what you wish for. And then we would really hands-on do it. We were there uh, 
three, four days a week, we'd come into homes for like an hour or two and, and, and really restructure these families. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, ended up, long story short, ended up rising the ladder, got on the leadership team, on the executive team in that company. And again, I just wasn't feeling the passion. You know, I, I, was, I was good at the job. I did it well, but I was um, just not feeling it. So I went and got a coaching certificate because I was running into coaches at um, conferences, you know, mental health conferences. There'd be like an executive coach there or a life coach or something. Got it, started working on the side and uh, then just hit that wonderful critical mass where I'm like, whoa, I can I can do this full time. And uh, so, so I ended up quitting the, the day job. I would say I started coaching around 2013. Um, I think it was probably 2007 or eight that I went coaching full time. That's a really uh, interesting journey. I haven't talked to anyone or spoken to anyone on this podcast that says, oh, we, we knew exactly what we wanted. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and we, from, from the time that we got out of school or, or when we were four years old, we, we knew exactly what we wanted. Very few yeah. people say that. But yeah, it's uh, interesting that I, I started also in, in accounting or some sort of financial realm. And, and okay. <laughs> I did the coaching, uh, my professional coaching program through Coactive uh, Training Institute. Okay. And uh, one of the very first thing that usually people ask when I introduce myself or reach out to them to experience the coaching is they ask me, okay, is this therapy? What's the difference? So since I have an expert in both domains here, <laughs> I want to get your view on what's the difference between those two things. You know, this is this is such a great question because I get asked it a lot. Uh, you know, I would even throw in there that we're always asked the training, consulting, coaching, mentorship, therapy, all these things. Um, here's one way I've been answering it right now. This is always evolving. Uh, I, I think that coaching and therapy are very similar because uh, you're, you're didactic. So it's you and another person in a room talking. It's intimate. It's confidential. It usually is all-inclusive. So meaning you're kind of going everywhere with your members. Mm-hmm. I think the difference for me is uh, when I was a therapist, you would go, uh, you'd start at the same place. So, so a therapist and a, a first coaching session, a first therapy session may, may feel similar. I think then you, as a therapist, you go into someone's past to help them make sense of their current behavior. So uh, this is why I do the things I do. This is an understanding of it. You, you may give a diagnosis to help pinpoint it. I think coaches go into your ideal future and help you find that path. So I think they kind of start at the same place and go different ways. You know, one goes backwards, one goes forward. The other thing uh, is I think that I, I give sort of an analogy that mental health therapy a lot of times is like physical therapy. Maybe there was an injury. Maybe there was a, a certain thing that, that is inhibiting you and a physical therapist kind of gets you. I hurt my shoulder once. They get you from injury to baseline. Uh, then once you're baseline, the insurance companies kick you out. So if you want to kind of keep on that path. If you want to do the second half, the good to great space, I, then you go to a personal trainer. So the, then you go to a personal trainer who, who helps you hit those goals. So I think coaches and therapists can kind of tag team that way. Mm. Whereas the coaches are, 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 are like the personal trainers and then the therapists are sort of like the physical therapists. Um, the line's always blurred. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a very blurry, but um, that's how I say it to members to help them understand that what we'll be doing in the space. I like this analogy, you know, therapists maybe focus on the past and get you to that baseline, like you said, and then coach can help you move forward and look at your ideal future. I started to look into this idea of positive psychology by Martin Seligman. Yeah. And he gives this metaphor of prepping the soil 
but you haven't planted the seeds. So getting to that baseline is like repping the soil. Yeah. But then you don't like, okay, you got rid of what you don't want. Now what? So have you had a, a time where you realized that working with this client that, okay, this is more therapy than coaching? And is there some sort of signs? To, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that, that's a real hard question, honestly, um, because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons. One, because we're, I mean, there's the incentive of the work. If you're working with someone, you have a relationship, it's it's hard to outsource. They, they may not want to be outsourced, especially with my background, because I'm comfortable in that space. I think um, the the other, you know, the other issue is, is finding that line. You mentioned positive psychology. Uh, I have a soapbox I'll try to only stand on for one second. <laughs> I've trained in positive psychology. There's also a wonderful thing, uh, folks should check it out, called solutions-based therapy. So uh, I'll train you in two seconds. So normally someone goes to a therapist, dear therapist, I'm depressed, and uh, tell me about your depression, tell me about your past. Uh, the solutions-based folks, uh, were, I think they're around like in the 80s, early 90s. Uh, you'd walk into the therapist, say, dear therapist, I'm depressed, and they would say, tell me about the last time you weren't. So they looked for what they called exceptions. So, uh, oh, well, I was working out and I was eating well and I had a job and they'd say, okay, well, go get a job, go work out and eat well. See you next week. Uh, so so I think they were sort of like the, the grandfathers of coaching in some way and the mm -hmm. positive psychology. Well, I think what people miss is positive psychology, that word positive is a scientific positive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you heard the old joke. Uh, good news, I got my COVID test back. It was positive. So we, we, we get confused about that word. Um, okay. It's not a smiley emoji. So so the positive psychologists were trying to look for what strengths exist. What, what is there we can build on? I used to do psychological assessments and you'd walk in and I'd say, where does it hurt? What are you terrible at? What have you been critiqued by? Tell me all your trauma. Tell me everything bad that happened to you. Tell me everything you hate. Okay, nice meeting you. Hmm. And then someone at some point said, maybe we should ask people what they're good at. I used to do this with parents. You know, they'd come in and they'd be ready to give me the litany of the kid. And then I'd say, uh, good story. Uh, what, so what's your kid good at? Hmm. Their jaws would just kind of drop. They'd be like, uh, <laughs> I guess he's good at this or that. So hmm. so I promised I wouldn't be on the soapbox too long. So I'll jump off that one. But um, so I think that sometimes when I describe therapy to folks, I say, if you're emotions are more in control than you are more frequently than you are, it's probably a good time for therapy. There are certain therapeutic or mental health issues that are situational that you can recover from. There are some that are chronic. So if I have a schizophrenia or um, you know, bi certain bipolar disorder, these sort of things, where I need an expert who can help me understand how to navigate this life with this, this brain I have. So a uh, long answer to your question, I think would be, um, you know, especially I would outsource it if, if it's such a particular need that it needs an expert, someone who really knows that domain, that realm. I think if it's more like lighter counseling stuff, well, counseling and coaches kind of play in the same field. So I think that really takes us to the, the topic I wanted to explore with you is emotions, getting deeper into the experience, because there is some sort of fine line or some overlap between therapy and coaching. You know, we can go a little deep, but not too deep because we're, we're trying to go enough to find out what's preventing the person from moving forward. You know, they want something, but they, something in the stuck that for them that they they're not able to go for uh, that thing that they want. This idea of moving forward or focusing on this future, we focus more on the coaching side. Mm -hmm. What have you seen in terms of emotions that prevent someone from moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also realize I'm nodding a lot. And people can't see that on our audio po podcast. <laughs> uh, the, uh, such a great question, that, that interplay. Um, you know, I... 
think what we're doing right now in the mental health world, this is going to sound bad at first, but uh, what, what I think we're doing now in the mental health world is going to be similar to when we look at these pictures of, of doctors like putting leeches on everybody. Um, it is such a new field, you know, that, that really some people say it started with Freud. Uh, there's some other arguments of other people, but wherever you pick it, the, the field itself is only a couple hundred years old, maybe less. Thinking about emotions, um, you know, Freud's an interesting character. He was a medical doctor. He was one of the first medical doctor who bothered to ask their patients, his women patients, his hysteric patients, about their history. He was kind of one of the only people doing that. Um, so he started the, the, the talk therapy. I think in coaching, well, let me, let me say one more thing. We are always already in emotion. This is the thing that I think most people miss that I, I, I don't see talked about a lot. Um, I actually have a, a bit of a beef and sorry if this, this picks fights, but I, I think the term emotional intelligence is an oxymoron because intelligence is, is a function of the frontal lobe. Thought, cognition is a function of the frontal lobe and emotion is a function of the limbic system. They're different systems and they aren't on at the same time. I think the way we set up mental health makes it almost seem like these quote unquote mentally ill people have a limbic system and, and everyone else doesn't. You know, we don't talk about emotions when I'm not in, in a therapy session. I, that's why I said earlier that when our emotions are more in control than we are, we need to get in that driver's seat. We need to put emotions in the passenger seat. That, that's a lot of the work of therapy. Most of my clients, I'm always working with emotion all the time. I think emotion is is sort of the remnants of our, our instinctual system. I think that, that it's a, it's our animal instinctual system. It's, it's wisdom. There's huge mm -hmm. wisdom in emotion. Problem is it's a blunt instrument. It doesn't really tell us what, what. it just, you know, it's good, bad, ooh, icky, more, please. So I think that um, I usually spend a lot of time with new coaches, just getting them in tune with the fact that they have emotion, that, that we're, we're, it's like ambient room temperature. It's always there. Mm -hmm. You can always do an emotional check. I might be a one out of 10, but I have emotion all the time. I know that I'm not totally answering your question, but uh, uh, here, here's a tidbit um, that I like to use. Can I, can I give you my demonstration that thoughts and feelings are different? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, here's, here's my demonstration trying to prove my emotional intelligence is an oxymoron. <laughs> think of a pink car. Tell me when you got it. Yeah. Okay. Think of a purple cloud. Tell me when you got it. Yeah, almost instantly. Almost instantly. <laughs> become elated. Yeah. Become uh -huh. depressed. We, we don't control that. It happens to us. It, mm. It's like ambient temperature. Yeah. Um, we're, we're experiencing motions is, is a very complex way of our brain registering existence in the world. And I, I won't go too into that. Mm. So um, so we're so sloppy with those words. We say, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling angry. Or then we say, I think I'm angry. Well, am I think I'm angry? Or am I feeling I'm angry? Or, uh, you know, I, I feel that's a good plan. No, I think that's a good plan. I'm using my frontal lobe now. Mm. So a lot of the education I find just on that, getting a, getting a member to realize what, what system they're in helps with a lot of that stuckness. This is a good way to uh, explore it, the idea of how emotions and intelligence or emotional intelligence is sort of an oxymoron because there's two different parts involved. And it's interesting because I like I like the term emotional literacy, like, you know, how to express emotions and, and use the words in a way that describe, you know, something. We also have like this idea of like emotions are like, we only have like certain range, very, very little range, like sad, happy, excited, anxious. There's not a whole lot of vocabulary that we use Good, when we bad. describe it. <laughs> Good, bad. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So it, has, has that been something that when you work with someone or a client or a coachee is to figure out to label the right emotion? Is it, is it, is it important yes, to label huge, that? Huge, 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 huge. Um, actually, I don't know if you want to do this. It might be a fun thing to do. Um, I have this sheet. Uh, I, I could give it to you and you could give it to people if they, they want to mm-hmm. want to email you or exchange an email for you. Maybe you could put it somewhere. But um, Yeah, I can, I can put it in the notes. When, uh, sure, yeah, we can throw it in the notes. It, it, it's, just a, it's a PDF. And what it is, is it's a two-side document to develop emotional literacy. It's, it, it's, a, it's a word bank. Page one is good. Page two is bad. And then there's these subdivisions. And what I'll do is I'll actually share it with a member in coaching. And I'll, sometimes I'll just get them to nuance that emotion word. So can you, can you get a little, you know, I feel good. Okay, well, look at this sheet. Is it, do you feel elated? Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel secure? Do you feel content? Do you feel thrilled? What, how do you feel? I was thinking this, I was chasing my, um, I was chasing my five-year-old up the stairs, pretending I was a monster and he's <laughs> laughing and running and laughing and running. And he gets to the top of the stairs and he goes, dad, dad, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I want you to do that. And I said, well, Isaac, you kept telling me to do it on the stairs. And he said, I feel, I feel excited and scared. And, and I, it was so beautiful that moment. I said, oh, the word for that son is thrilled. It's thrilling. You feel thrilled right now. And he was like, I, uh, it was this new emotion. And, and having young kiddos, you get to watch them kind of find these new emotions. And, and, and I try this with my kids. So I love they, they make these mashups. They're like, dad, I feel... I feel uh, uh, sad, uh, happy, and you're like, okay, let's explore that. What does that mean, sad, happy? You know, well, uh, and they're they're talking about nostalgia. I miss mm. I miss our old house, or I miss these old toys. So, um, yeah, I think that um, what that is is it's bringing this phenomenological experience of the limbic system doing its thing into cognition. Now, that's where the intelligence comes in. So, so if I can bring sort of this experience into my cognition, if I can name it, I can now talk about it. I can I can influence mm. it. I can manage it. So, uh, so huge. Yeah, I love that emotional literacy stuff. You, you're yeah. getting me too excited on all these. <laughs> it's uh, important because people use more logic when they go in, into work and then when they are at home, they experience emotions and maybe it's different. Now with the whole pandemic and uh, COVID and people staying home, there is no separation anymore. <laughs> so yeah, you're <laughs> experiencing <laughs> everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know what I find, I'd be curious if you find this too. Um, I call it uh, often with my my corporate clients, my executives, I, I find them having their emotional process masquerade as thinking. Mm. They think they're thinking. Right now, a lot of my businesses are, they're getting anxious because here we are at the end of 2020 and they realize that everybody just took a mulligan this year and they're starting to look at the sheets. And mm. so all these emails are coming out from CEOs. We are back to business as usual. Everyone, we need to get in the office. And, and everybody's getting so nervous about these emails. And mm. I would say that those are examples of emotion masquerading as thinking. You know, these CEOs think they're sending this thoughtful email, but they're really saying, I'm so freaking scared. I'm looking at all this data. Oh my God, we're going out of business. Please come back to work. Uh, uh, help me feel secure. So I think, think that... Um, I think that we, we, we have to catch, we have to become so uh, mindful of when we're in an emotional process versus a thinking process. Yeah. Because at work, we always pretend emotions aren't there. But like I said, it's like ambient room temperature. It's always there. It's there and people can feel it. Or, even... or it, it affects us. It affects us, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, uh, that's why affect is such a beautiful <laughs> word for emotion. It, it affects us. That's a good uh, connection. And when it affects us, then, then we don't to bring our whole self. We, we don't feel that we're, we're showing up. Yeah, uh, I, just your, completely. I just heard your kids yell and I got nervous. I was like, oh my yeah. God, we're on a podcast and the kids <laughs> sound came in. We're supposed to be professionals. 
yeah, I got affected just there. <laughs> yeah, that's constantly happening. Like you're always like, okay, I'm in this middle of the, the workday, but now I have to also like figure out what's uh, what I can let in and, and filter out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because the, the earth is going to stop spinning if my coworkers see my dog, you know, it's like... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Fear. Uh, yeah. 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 So I, I think what you, you're you bringing up a really good point about this idea of, of emotions masquerading as thinking and people can sense what's beneath that thinking. You may, you may think or the CEO might think that I'm looking out for everyone, let's come back and all that stuff. But at the same time, like you said, there is a fear emotion that everyone can sense, but no one is willing to say anything and now and now you you bring everyone back or they're back only not showing up fully right mm, they're compromised so, yeah they're compromised and that affect the the way that they show up the way they they you know produce or or how how productive they are how how people interact with each other because they're carrying this heavy weight of the unspoken emotions and it's resonating in them you know emotion, emotions have resonance we we uh, it's like the old tuning fork experiment uh, you know one's one's vibrating at a certain frequency it'll cause the other it's very very hard. I don't know about you, but when I got into therapy and coaching stuff, sometimes it's hard for me to be in restaurants when people are fighting. Mm-hmm. I like I like want to go to the table and solve it. Be like, he's <laughs> trying to say this. She's trying to say this. Can we tone this down? I'm trying to enjoy my meal because um, yeah. it's affecting me. And that's another thing that is it's in the the atmosphere. It's like you know what yeah. people people know that when you walk into the room and then two people just had an argument or something, you can almost sense in the air that there was something going on. Something happened here. This is where you and I. I get right. dangerously close to saying the word energy and then yeah. the audience. But yeah, there's there's a there's a there's a you know, we have these sayings. I could cut the tension with a knife. Everyone knows that saying. If I say that, you know what I mean. I don't know about you, but I can tell from the first word on the preview that pops up on my iPhone on a text message from my mother if I should be nervous or not. Mm. I have a lifetime of that woman affecting me and me affecting her. That mm. sometimes I you can you can like tell a text message is gonna be bad or good news somehow before you even look at a word of it. Yeah. Maybe it's the time of day, maybe it's a situation. Why is this person texting me? I don't know. It's really complicated, but um, there's always an effective field. So, so effective leadership is about leaders managing the effective climate. We do this as coaches. When you're when you're a coach, I mean, have you ever had that coaching session where you're really off and you got to compartmentalize that? You need to be emotionally present to the member. Yeah, it is hard. The word that throw into this uh, discussion in the beginning is resilience. You know how to come back from this if you are not expressing the emotion and you're holding on to it, and now you have to function. There is very little resilience there because you can't bounce back if you're carrying it around, right? It's just not, yeah. not possible. Yeah, I'm curious how you, you mentioned that. Uh, that word's kind of new to me. How do you define resilience? The, What's your rough draft current yeah, defin- evolving definition? Yeah. It, it's interesting because I was going to ask you that question. I was going to say, what does resilience <laughs> ah, mean to you? To it. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. This morning I woke up with this like image of a deflated ball. When I think of resilience is how like you're bouncing back quickly from something that happened. And when the ball is deflated, it doesn't bounce back. You just try to bounce it and it doesn't come back, right? So mm. it just sits on the on the ground and doesn't come back. So that's like feeling resilience to me is just how quickly do you bounce back from upset or, you know, circumstances. Yeah. I was thinking when you said that, you know, like if you take something like a tennis ball or a racquetball and you you, you deform them, mm. they can pop back into shape. You know, the yeah. resilience is yeah, when, how, how quickly definitely. can we pop back into shape? How quickly can we put it together? I, I know that you and I are both 
fathers and man, you got to turn it on for those kids all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter what happened to you. They want to play Legos. Let's play Legos. Uh, and uh, I thought of that as you were talking that that resilience of, of, of working in our families. Um, and then, then we have to do that with employees, especially right now, man, these, mm. these leaders in COVID and no one knows a ways up They're They're mm. trying to tend to their teams. They're trying to tend to the business They're Everyone's worried about the economy. It's just um, talk about the resilience that people need right now. So I am curious if you have found some practices or, or ways to help come back or bounce back into shape. I guess, yeah. you know, it might depend on emotions, feelings, or how deep that upset has been. Like perfect example, this we've been at home or six months or close to six months. You know, we don't know when things are going to open up fully. So there's this still constant grief of what's going to happen, what there's uncertainty, unknown. How do you bounce back from this? I, I sometimes think in metaphors, I, it can be frustrating for some people, but uh, COVID to me, I'm a, I'm like a backpacker. I, yeah, yeah. I, do, I, I should write in hieroglyphs, but uh, uh, I'm a, I like backpacking. I'm a, I'm a good, a big backpacker. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get a little lost in where you're at. So COVID to me is like, you know, I ran out of water. Uh, I think I'm near the campsite. And then I find I was reading the map wrong and I have another like 10 miles to go. And I, and I just want to like lay down and cry, but I'm in the middle of the woods. So nobody cares if I'm laying down and crying. <laughs> so like at some point I got to pick my butt up and walk, um, you know, or, or just become bare food, I guess. But, um, uh, you know, I think resilience is, is, is picking up and walking. It's not resignation. Resignation is uh, just mm-hmm. I'll feed the bears and get good karma from that. But uh, so tools, you know, it's so cliche that I, I hate saying it, but um, I, mindfulness is so important. Mindfulness practice. Now, kind of my PSA is that as, as America and the U.S. Uh, learns about mindfulness, we're, we're still kind of amateurs at it. And what I most commonly see is people are, are accidentally using relaxation mm-hmm. instead of mindfulness. I tell people that are unfamiliar with it, maybe a little scared of it because of the religious tones or sort of the mysticism of it that I say, you know, the reason they use incense or breathing and mindfulness is not because it's mystical, uh, sort of like the Christian tradition. They use it because it's boring. You Mm. spend 20 minutes paying attention to something that is utterly boring. That's so boring that your brain is just like, what's next? You know, put on Netflix. The ability to pay attention at that point, you're working out the awareness muscle. I was reading that mindfulness is probably a bad translation. It should have been awarenessing. So I think that awarenessing is the foundation where then you can do the, the work of saying, am I in the thinking space? Am I in the feeling space? Where am I at? Where do I want to be? That's what we do a lot in coaching sessions. Mm-hmm. We just heighten people's awareness. Yeah. You know, sometimes I, I'm just ecstatic. I'm like, man, I'm getting paid for this. Yeah. Uh, this is great. Uh, but it's so valuable. People, we don't do that. So I think that yeah. I think that mindfulness is, it allows you to catch it. Once you catch it, let me, you know, let me go back to my ambient room temperature. So right now you have a room temperature. Would you say you're great, a little hot, or a little cold? Great. Okay, you're great. If you were a little hot, you could turn on a fan. If you were a little cold, you could throw on a blanket or a shirt. We we kind of influence it externally. Now the first thing was the awareness. Where am I at, and how? do I influence it? So I think with our emotions, when we're really kind of beaten up, when we need that ball to refill or bounce back, I think that um, we influence it externally. This is where I like the, how people are using this word hygiene, emotional mm. hygiene. You know, sometimes I'm just consuming these trashy Netflix shows about death and mayhem, and I'm listening to bad music, and I'm eating bad food, and I'm hearing people complain to me all day long. And uh, that's terrible hygiene. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I, when I need to be resilient, I've just been consuming all this negative drama. You know, I grew up in the nineties where everything was so angsty. And, um, you know, if I pop on some good music or if I listen to some inspirational stuff, it's a little cheesy, but it, it um, it's like putting that blanket on. Yeah. It, it's good hygiene. So mm-hmm. I think I skipped a little fast there, but I think, I think the awareness allows you to know where you're at and planfully intervene. You know, I think sometimes we treat resilience like this um, magical thing. You have it or you don't. It's an actioning set. I think it's raising that level of awareness or consciousness is, yeah. is something that coaching uh, can provide or help. And usually people, when they're stuck or they think that they don't have a choice, they don't have that level of awareness to step back and look at all the things that are leading to, to that stuckness. But yeah, some of it is like hygiene, like consuming a lot of negativity or watching the news too much, maybe. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Welcome political. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a good uh, point to step back and get oriented and be present with yeah. what's what's going on. It's so hard so, to do. So what makes what makes it hard? Is it because we're constantly busy filling up our time and and uh, not uh, taking uh, space? I think I think uh, it's a it's a flaw in our design. I think that um we're we're survival machines. Personally, I believe we took the route of evolution. Uh, um, I think that we've evolved to survive. Um, I think we we've evolved to adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, a work title of a, a book or a group coaching I might do is called Your Brain is Not Your Friend and It Can't Be Trusted. I think that that idea that, that awareness allows us to know that sort of the observer is other than um, we're not our emotions, we're not our thoughts. Uh, the brain has an agenda. It's, it's got a strong agenda. Some people live their life never questioning that thing and they're unhappy and they're reactive and they come to therapy and say, why is my life so ruined? Why am I so destined for failure? And, you know, and, and when you propose to them that, you know, uh, they have choice it's just they just can't see it you know they really struggle because they're they're so one with with it there's no distance between their emotions and their thinking in them i think that um awareness or, or mindfulness allows us to drive a little bit of that wedge and be intentional sometimes my, my tagline sometimes with coaching used to be i don't use it as much now i don't know why i should but it used to be um, learning to live your life intentionally it's interesting you say that because i all of us have these like i have definitely like you know a lot of thoughts and inner critics or inner voices or yes. saboteurs we don't really like all these automatic thoughts that happen internally we may not pay attention but it's it's actually affecting us you know? yes oh yeah it's all it's always affecting you so you said meditation you said uh, mindfulness can help us stay present and watch these thoughts that affect how we show up and how we behave what else have you seen that could bring that level of awareness or consciousness we talked a little bit about like emotional literacy and labeling that can help mindfulness shutting off a lot of negativity or the hygiene. Yeah, hygiene um, of it. Practice, finding a way you can practice it. Some people find it in exercise. You know, some people find it in um, uh, other things. Uh, trying to spend a percentage of your day in the driver's seat, just getting used to being in the driver's seat, getting out of the comfort zone. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of brain stuff lately, you know, and they talk about how um, we're just so egocentric and we pretend we work that way. You know, most of our day is on autopilot. Most of our day, we're just kind of playing out scripts. And, uh, yeah. you know, one thing I find really useful uh, especially with COVID right now, uh, we just we just got these little, everybody jokes about Groundhog Day. You know, we got this little Groundhog Day. We're just on this, this little hamster wheel and we play out the same thing. That's bad for the brain. It's atrophy. Doing something new. I, I don't know where I picked this up. Some kind of self-help book said, uh, someone like us with family and kids, you should do three trips a year. You should do one with the family, one with you and your significant other and one alone. And um, those trips should be different. They should be challenging. Uh, I think one of the 
reasons I like backpacking is it reminds me of, um, it sounds so cheesy, but it reminds me of existence. You know, I'm out there and I'm on, on, a, on the woods eating out of my back and I'm remembering, you know, this is life. This is what it, this is, what it is whether I like it or not. And uh, then we come back to society and all this artifice we put on it. I don't know. That, that was a little esoteric. Sorry, I went there. But I think it's um, what I was getting at is that getting out of our comfort zone, again, kind of a cheesy thing that coaches always say, but it's so important, you know, doing something different, anything different, eating different foods, going to different places, walking in different directions. I mean, who, who walks anymore? Go walk around your neighborhood. Three houses down, no one knows what's happening over there. I don't ever go there. I think that that practices that brain elasticity. It kind of shakes it up a little bit. It gives us the opportunity to intervene on our brain, intervene on ourselves. I think of this uh, metaphor of like someone who's in sleep and there's a lot of things that are running in the background, like automatic, and then they can't really do anything about it unless they wake up <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it's just like, you know, after they, they, they wake up, then they can gain the consciousness back and then now they can maybe take action or do something. You, you gain power. Yeah. You know, you gain ability. I think um, my, my wife is a specialty therapist. She works in OCD and anxiety and she has this beautiful phrase with her, her clients. She teaches them to boss their brain back. So like my anxious brain wants to worry about this right now. Boss it back. She tells them we use it with our kiddos. It works great. I thought of one thing when you were saying, saying that. So, so when the sleeper wakes up, well, then you have freedom. Okay. What do you do with that freedom? What do you do with that ability? That's where then I think it's useful with a coach or, or something to do like values exercises. Uh, what is the life I want to live? What do I even like? What sort of things do I want to do? I don't know about you, but I coach these really successful people who've just been on autopilot, you know, in their fifties and sixties and they're making great money and driving the sports car. And they're like, I've never lived a day in my life. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm going to do with retirement. I don't even know what I like. I've just yeah. been kind of following the script. So yeah, I, I, you know, I think the values can help you do something with that ability if, if you can gain it. I love this so much, this idea of talking back to your brain. It's not until we start to talk back and say, what's happening in there? Like, what's going on that we why start- do you, Why do you want me to eat the 16th donut brain? Why do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> Yeah. Question. What's causing the behavior? Like, you know, I'm thought something, there's no, like even a, a pause from what we're thinking and what we're doing sometimes. And it helps to just question or talk back to the brain. <laughs> it's a little weird when you say yeah. it that way, but, but it really is, Um, you know, that, that I think that you, you can check, you can double check that you're living mm. in accordance with your values. You're just not on some script, that you're not just acting out some psychodrama. You know, the brain's always taking cognitive shortcuts. I mean, really, uh, this is way deeper than we need need to go into right now, but like, yeah. as we talk about issues of race, race and ethnicity and all of this stuff, you know, prejudice is a, a cognitive shortcut. This is one of the reasons the brain can't be trusted or left to its own devices. It doesn't do well. It's, just, yeah. it's, you know, it's tribal. It's, it's primitive. I started to learn more about unconscious bias and started to think, okay, this is, it's almost like, like you said, it's a script. It's a program that is running that we have not really questioned or realized that maybe we need to update that program. <laughs> or interrupted it, you know? Or interrupt it, yeah. I don't know about you, but I see this myth all the time. People come to coaching and they think that um, they're going to become super people. Mm. I'll never experience stress again. I'll never be indecisive again. I'll, I'll know what I'm doing. I had this coach, she worked with me for years and she came in and said, I guess this has been an utter failure. I thought we were doing so good in coaching. And I said, why? She said, well, I got nervous in a meeting. It's like, what? Mm. wait, what? <laughs> What's the <laughs> assumption here that you'll never experience this? So uh, I say it this way. This is another one of my, my things that I like to say to clients and members. Um, it's not about what you do in this world. It's about what you do about 
about what you do. So it's about that double check. You know, sometimes those biases come in. They're going to. Sometimes those automatic things come in. It's kind of like the the anti-racist movement. You do you, you make an effort to wheel it back. You make an effort to to change it after we do the things we do. Which is also why I think we need to not be so critical of of the things we do. Uh, and this goes really deep. But even you know, oppressor and victim. You know, we're all in this dance. We're all trying to figure it out. The quote that comes to me, like when you said that, is like you know, in order to change, I have to accept myself first, and then I can change. Probably young. He did a lot of work on like the shadow self and you know these yeah. these parts of ourselves that they're ugly. We're back to this idea of emotions. Like if we don't yeah. acknowledge what's happening in there, then it just becomes this automatic thing, and we're never aware that's even happening to us. Yeah, I mean, how profound is that? Emotions are always already happening. They're they're always happening. You either look at them or you don't, but they're always happening. So so yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of uh, a lot of topics <laughs> that we uh, that we covered. Yeah, good good luck uh, to all of you. And I think one thing that you mentioned that we can wrap up with this, that idea of like thinking about our thinking or almost like the meta skills or meta emotions, not just feeling what we're feeling, but why we're feeling what we're feeling. I talked to my members about you need to move from analysis to observation. So so I would say we need to observe our thinking. We need to observe our feeling. And we need to observe. It's it's the observer that is sort of the ultimate judge and jury of our, ourselves. I think there's, there's another part of the brain there that's just starting to open up that we're realizing that I can observe my thinking and I can observe my feeling. We, we bias that I'm my thinking and I'm not. Mm. So yeah, I think something in there about just being aware of these things playing out in us. This is really what, what Freud was trying to get at with the superego and the ego and the id. Um, he's trying to kind of think through that process. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I do think, and I think I'm using that word correctly, I do think that um, we need to observe ourselves. And, and let me kind of take this out of the clouds. If I can observe myself, then I can say, is this what I want to be doing right now? Last night, I was binging on some some nonsense show and uh, the kids were asleep and I was asleep and I haven't slept well in days and I have this new wonderful Fitbit that tells me every day I don't sleep well. And, uh, you know, and the, 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 all these wonderful corporate psychologists are tricking us. So, you know, the next show starts before the other one ends and they do these great cliffhangers and it's just yeah. so automatic to get sucked in. And uh, so I observed what I'm doing and I, and I just asked, do I want to be doing this right now? And I was like, no, I don't. And this weird part of my brain was like, yes, I do. I love it. More. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, what are you, who are you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and then I could decide what I wanted to do. Yeah. So observing and then taking, deciding, choosing how to respond rather than just to go into keep the script running. <laughs> yeah. And isn't, that, isn't that what we're always trying to do as coaches? We're trying to help our members choose the life they want. Interrupt the script that they're telling themselves or the story that they're, they're telling themselves and either edit, update, modify <laughs> the script that has been running for maybe some time. So is there any resource that you can point us to explore emotional literacy? Yeah, sure. I, I think one, it would be cool if, if I, I'll get you that worksheet. Folks can mm -hmm. check it out. It's a real simple exercise. You know, you just look at this thing and name it in the moment. I really do like the work. There's a guy by the name of Murray Bowen who uh, uh, started a lot of systemic thinking. I, I think there's one, there's one woman, Roberta Gilbert, who uh, took a lot of his work and made it more accessible. His work's kind of very heady. Um, mm -hmm. And so she wrote a book called Extraordinary Leadership and a similar one called Extraordinary Relationship that um, I think is a very good sort of intro to thinking this way. I think uh, another really what people should do is just get a fantastic coach like you or me, and then we can, we can usher them through it. So then we're... <laughs> then they'll be good. Definitely a coach can help because they, they are trained in picking up on some of the things like emotions or whether it's like, like you said earlier, like, is it, is it something I'm th thinking that is actually emotion? It's not, it's not, yeah. it's, it's a feeling, not a, not a, a thinking, but, but also just having some sort of a sounding board or someone that can stop the, the script because
because it might take some practice or willpower and that doesn't really happen alone. Like you need yeah. someone to help you through that. Which I think come in full circles where coaches are different than training and consulting. We're coaching, right. present tense verb, coaching. You know, we're, we're, we're helping folks master that. So any final thoughts or comments before we uh, wrap up? Um, none that would take less than an hour. So this is such <laughs> a great conversation. Uh, no, uh, really amazing conversation. Uh, I appreciate the space to have this conversation and, and explore it. So yeah, I just think... Um, yeah, I'd love to see how people, how this lands with people. I'd love to hear kind of some of the comments on the show and whatnot. And I'm uh, just grateful for the opportunity. I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to do this. Definitely a lot of uh, insights and uh, metaphor that I'm taking. <laughs> I feel affected by this conversation. Uh-oh, there it is. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, certainly I would love to have you back at some point, maybe explore some of the topics that we talked about and we didn't get an opportunity to, to go um, more into it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. But thank you again, Sean. I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to having you again. Wonderful. I'd love to do it. Hey, thank you for listening. I hope this conversation gave you something to think about or take action on. Remember, take action and get clarity, then repeat.